Join the party and spirits are playing in your city. God, we're so excited. Eric will be wearing his DMing glove the entire trip. I'm both worried and excited. Seven cities, 10 days at the end of March 2024. Your two favorite podcasts, Join the Party and Spirits, are performing live. We're playing games, rolling dice, making monsters, and a whole lot more. So come see us in Seattle at the Hereafter on March 21st. Minneapolis at Granada on March 22nd. Chicago at Reggie's on March 24th. Boston at the Rockwell on March 25th, New York City at Littlefield March 26th, Philly at City Winery March 27th, and D.C. at Atlas Brewworks on March 28th. Get your tickets right now at jointhepartypod.com slash live. That's jointhepartypod.com slash live. There you can see all the ticket links and find the city that works for you. When you're rolling the bones, your future is looking good. Join us. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 312, talking all about Poltergeist, baby! Ah, the movie Poltergeist. What a wonderful and weird movie with a really interesting background and a lot of stuff for us to talk about. Incredible. It it really is a classic of the genre in a way that you sort of forget. Like when we talked about um, the Halloween movies, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess this wasn't always a thing that that we talked about. Like, I guess teenagers didn't always die after having sex in horror movies. Like it, it is a thing that comes from somewhere. And I love the chance, Julia, to talk about the origins of those tropes with you. Yeah. And people forget how fucked up some Spielberg movies can be. So this one in particular is pretty fucked up. But Julia, whenever we do a myth movie night, we always have to sort of flip a coin. We made Eric do it last time and talk about a a two minute summary of the movie. So are are you feeling prepared and spooky and ready to do that today? I always feel prepared and spooky. Yay! I should be fine. It was a loaded question. (laughs) Let me get my timer (laughs) up real quick. Beautiful. All right. Ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Always, baby. All right. Let's do it. So the Freeling family lives in a planned community, and they have three kids, Dana, Robbie, and Carol Ann. Carol Ann starts doing that creepy kid thing where she starts talking to TV static like it's a person, and then claiming at the end one of the infamous lines of the film, they're here. After that, weird shit starts happening around the house, glasses breaking, furniture moving around, and the wife, Diane, finds it like kind of cool at first, but it quickly becomes super malicious. During a storm, the creepy tree that's outside the kid's window seemingly comes to life and tries to eat the kid Robbie. And while everyone is distracted by that, Carol Ann gets sucked into a portal in her closet and disappears. However, they can still hear her voice through the TV. 
So the Freelings contact a paranormal investigative team who determine that there are several spirits in the house, including a poltergeist. The husband, Stephen, also learns that the whole community was built over a former cemetery and that the graves were moved before construction began. A medium is called and she determines that there is a malicious spirit that stole Carol Ann and is preventing the other spirits in the house from moving on. They manage to open the portal that Carol Ann went through and Diane enters it to try to get Carol Ann out and manages to pull her out like and is covered with ectoplasm. It's super gross. The medium then says the house is clean, but as the family plans to move, the malicious beast spirit returns to try to kidnap Carol Ann back. In an attempt to escape, they fall into the flooded, unfinished swimming pool in their backyard, which reveals lots of dead bodies, showing that only the tombstones were moved, not the actual graves themselves. Diane manages to escape with the children, and the whole family drives away as their house is sucked into a portal and disappears. You did it, Julia. That's it. That's the movie. It's a lot. A lot happens there. There's a lot, and there's a lot of like creepy scenes that I didn't touch on just because they're like showing the haunting that's happening. Like at one point, some guy sees his own face kind of get shredded in the mirror and then it turns out he's fine. And it's it's wild. Truly wild movie. What was your impression re-watching? So this is something that I, you know, hadn't experienced before watching it for today's episode. But I know you are more of a connoisseur of the horror genre. So how does it stand up? It still stands up. I think there are some really interesting effects that happen in the film. It is well produced there's a lot of me looking at the film and being like wow this is bad parenting wow you guys could be doing a better job at this this is really bad what are you thinking what's going on but it is like a really interesting film in that it did kind of create this specific brand of horror that was very much like a criticism on commercialism and capitalism, which is both surprising and not surprising from Spielberg, given the other movies that he put out around this time period. And I just I think it's really interesting as, as a little background for people who aren't familiar with the movie or anything like that. Poltergeist premiered in 1982. It was written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grace, and Mark Victor with the story by Spielberg. And it was directed by Toby Hooper, who also directed the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is also really interesting and kind of like gets into a little bit of film history because Spielberg was originally supposed to direct it, but he was contractually obligated to not direct any other films while he was in the process of directing E.T., so Toby Hooper was brought in, but there was a whole thing where it's like Toby Hooper would like set up the shot and then Spielberg would step in and actually do the directing part. Or according to some people, Spielberg was hands off, but some people said that he was like super hands on and basically like Toby Hooper's like name was there and that was about it. And it's just like a really he said, she said type of production scandal that was happening there. It is really deeply relatable to me of like signing a contract or getting or like doing an NDA and then being like, well, you know, factually, I did work there. And factually, I left very quickly. You can draw your own conclusions as to uh, what my experience was like. But uh, there we go. Yeah, exactly. So it's a interesting film. Again, the special effects were very interesting for the time period. Spielberg movies always have really interesting special effects because of his relationship with ILM, which is the Industrial Light and Magic special effects company. Uh, they did Jurassic Park. They did a bunch of different stuff. But his special effects are always really interesting. And in this particular film, because we're dealing with ghosts and a poltergeist, which we'll get into a little bit more later in the episode, they have to do a lot of like really cool camera work and really cool like practical special effects. So I think the movie is really interesting in that regard as well. 
also, just in case you haven't seen it, starring Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson, a very young Craig T. Nelson, too. Like, he is a handsome man in this film, I'll say that. Uh, and it was just like a major critical and commercial success, and it has been recognized as a horror movie classic for years now. Incredible. It really surprises me looking back that it was also nominated for three Academy Awards. It's not a thing that I sort of associate with horror. And I think that our like our meaning like, you know, U.S. Hollywood cultural snobbishness about genre film is something that I grew up thinking is really normal in the 90s and 2000s. And now as more, you know, sci-fi and fantasy movies are being nominated, the Academy sort of begrudgingly has to recognize genre film. But there is still being like we talk about this all the time, like there is so much more interesting stuff being done in genre film than I think in mainstream movies um, a lot of the time. And I mean, I'm glad they got three Academy Awards. I think horror movies pioneered effects in a way that they could not ignore. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, nominated for Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects Editing, and Best Original Score, which I'm not a score person, so that's not my bag. But sound effects and visual effects, hell yeah. Love that kind of stuff. So, so really was doing some interesting stuff with it, for sure. But before we kind of dig into the tropes of the film and kind of where it lies in the field of horror movies, let's talk about a poltergeist. Because we're talking about a movie called Poltergeist, but where do we get the word poltergeist? What does it mean? So anyone familiar with German will probably recognize that it is a German word uh, deriving from polter, which means noise or racket, as in like making a racket, and geist meaning spirit or sometimes ghost. So traditionally, a poltergeist refers to a specific type of paranormal activity that have no demonstrable cause, but were believed to be the activity of mischievous spirits. So for example, Poltergeists are often considered the source of things like objects flying through the air and hitting people, furniture or walls moving and shaking, or noises that sound like rapping on walls or on furniture, or even imitating human voices. So in various reports of poltergeists, they have been known to break plates and bowls, they shift furniture, they shatter windows, they bump objects and people, and they also even bite despite the fact that they're often portrayed as either shapeless or without form. And I mean, we see a lot of those in the film. A lot of those examples are definitely available to us in the film. Mm -hmm. Knocking or cracking are also common sounds associated with poltergeists, as well as doors slamming, cabinets opening and closing on their own accord, and books falling out of bookcases. So a poltergeist is, of course, not exclusively a German thing, despite the fact that we get the word from the German. Many various cultures feature mischievous spirits like a poltergeist. So one that comes to mind is something like a leprechaun with their predilection for Practical jokes like misplaced items and inexplicable messes, you know. Mm -hmm. And in a, a similar vein, the Iberian and Filipino duende is a similarly mischievous spirit, though they tend to have more of a physical form like a leprechaun as opposed to the often shapeless poltergeist. Long story short, poltergeist. Mischievous spirit, usually not visible to the naked eye, kind of just mischievous ghost, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, unlike almost any other spirit or creature that we talk about on the show, the poltergeist is something I associate with its effects rather than itself and its own shape. 
a ghost, we're like, oh, we see something, but it doesn't do anything, right? Like we we often talk about the presence or the ways you can detect it or what you do when you see one. But with the poltergeist, it's like, oh, no, something moved. I hear something. I see something. And it's almost like defined by its negative, right? Like defined by the lack of other explanations or telltale signs. If it's, you know, noisy, you know, disruptive, mysterious, a little bit scary, then maybe it's a poltergeist. I think that brings up a great point. I think also a lot of times when like paranormal investigators or people who have studied ghosts and this kind of thing are talking about the difference between ghosts and poltergeists. A ghost is obviously like the spirit of a deceased human being, whereas poltergeists are more often defined as like a form of energy. So like if something bad happens in a location, that negative energy, rather than being like an individual spirit, is a force that has been created. You know what mm, I mean? Yeah. Bad memories all kind of coalescing into a force rather than like, oh, that's the spirit of old man Rivers. He died here in 1850. You know what I mean? Exactly. Poltergeist might be a German word, but to explore the way that poltergeist is seen and used in modern society, we kind of have to explore the early literary beginnings of the spiritualism movement. And in that sense, the 19th century American con artist history. Yay! Nothing I love more than a good history of a con. I know you do. And it's because a lot of stories that were referred to in newspapers and in writings as poltergeists, they were eventually proven to be hoaxes. Mm -hmm. So to get us started on that path, we need to travel to Rochester, New York and meet the Fox sisters. Julia, I don't know what it is about Western and Central New York, but something about it just bred cults and spiritualism and con artists and hucksters and snake oil salesmen. And I I couldn't be more delighted to live in close proximity to this history. Yes. If you have never heard of the burned over district of New York, Google that. Check it out. It has a fascinating history. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yes. Thrilling. The Fox sisters were perhaps one of the most publicized origins of the spiritualism movement. Amanda, what do you know about the spiritualism movement? Well, Julia, it was a craze and a trend across people of means, for the most part, who were really interested in going to seances and experts and fortune tellers and people who could connect with the dead. I think in a lot of ways, this comes after the sort of like high Victorian popularity of mourning, popularized by Queen Victoria when her beloved husband Albert died. And and people, you know, got very into like death mementos and like wearing mourning in a very extravagant ways for a lot longer than they did historically because the queen did. And therefore, you know, Brits took it as popular and Americans both wanted to emulate Brits while also wanting to do their own thing. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, death was less taboo. It was less scary. I think death was also starting to get medicalized. So, you know, death would happen outside the home more frequently. There was more of a death industry. People, you know, took care of and washed and shrouded their dead less often as more people moved to cities. And so as death becomes less something that you deal with on a sort of routine basis, you know, in your farm or your village and more a thing where like you could see wild accidents or, you know, factory mishaps or, you know, somebody died or there was a plague or suddenly there was a house fire and much people died. Like it's a lot less predictable, a lot more mysterious and something that you have to kind of like figure out your relationship to. And in some ways, I see it as being really analogous to like the popularity of true crime podcasts in, you know, the, the 2010s and things like that, where stuff's happening in the world and we kind of grab onto the ways that we can like tangentially kind of get our minds around it mm -hmm. and 
talk about it while not facing the fact that we're all going to die one day. So that's what I know of spiritualism. (laughs) And that's a lot. You know a lot about spiritualism. Also, just as a side note, I read a great romance novel that has spiritualism and the death of Prince Albert as like a subplot of the novel. And it was great. Incredible. And a really good time with that. So as you said, all those things are true. For our, like, conversation that we're going to have here about the Fox sisters and stuff, it's also important to know that this was, like, a social and religious movement as well, which believed in the, quote, continuity of consciousness after the transition of death, and that communication between the living and the dead could be achieved. It, It was also the belief of spiritualism that in the afterlife, the dead continued to evolve past their abilities as mortal humans, making them more advanced than mortal humans. And as they were more evolved than those on the mortal plane, contacting the dead meant that they could provide insight into moral and ethical issues and sometimes act as quote unquote spirit guides. Yeah. So that was why people wanted to contact the dead, not just for like the closure, but the idea that the dead know more than us and therefore can give us insight on how to deal with ethical conundrums of the modern day. Yeah, people were getting less religious. They had more options depending on, of course, your race and class and gender. You maybe had choices that you didn't before. And it is overwhelming when you have more options than the no options that you were used to. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up gender as a thing as well, because it's worth noting that many prominent spiritualists, even after the Fox sisters, were women and were prominent leaders, not only in the spiritualist community, but as well in the abolitionist and suffrage movements in the United States as well. Yeah. And this was also a, from my understanding, mostly from romance novels, to be honest, um, (laughs) you know, a sort of a social activity you could do, like a a thing you could go out, you know, women weren't like hanging out in in coffee shops or, you know, political and philosophical leagues for the most part because they weren't allowed to. And so if you did something that was seen as feminine or domestic or the sort of natural outgrowth to like having tea in someone's drawing room or, you know, doing like embroidery or volunteering or the you know small amount of things that privileged women of means were allowed to do, this was kind of close enough to religion that it was sort of like a weird social quirk. But in reality, it was a way to like have a bit of a thrill. Like a lot of this was super theatrical with like hidden trip wires and mirrors and lights and assistants and, and almost like a theater or a show that you could go to, you know, unchaperoned or maybe that your chaperone was also super into. That is a great point. I'm so glad you're talking about like the kind of like magic behind the curtain of this because it really did all start with the Fox sisters. So the spiritualist movement marks the start of the movement as March 31st, 1848. A specific date, (laughs) which coincided with the Fox sisters reportedly making contact with their first spirit. So there were three Fox sisters. There was Leah, Kate, and Maggie. So Maggie and Kate were the ones who claimed to have contacted the spirit of a murdered peddler who they said haunted their home and who communicated with them through the rapping noises that the older sister Leah heard as well. So their story very quickly spread and then became a sensation and they became really just the first celebrity mediums, which is Mm kind of wild seeing how 
celebrity medium is like a real job nowadays. You know what I mean? Yeah. And for all kinds of reasons involving technology and taxes and distribution and mail, the sort of journalistic industry was a lot broader, too. And so you could hear about crazes that were sweeping Philadelphia if you lived in Boston or whatever in a way that you really couldn't before. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I love the idea of like how quickly their popularity spread. And their popularity also stemmed from the fact that they would perform public seances. So you could like go to a theater and buy a ticket and see them. So on November 14th, 1849, they performed the quote-unquote rapping at Corinthian Hall, which was a venue in Rochester, New York, which was also notably the first demonstration of spiritualism before a paying public. Like you said, a lot of the times this was like stuff that was done in rich people's parlors as like a party thing. You could like, oh, we're going to have drinks at our house and then also there's going to be a seance. Mm -hmm. But this was performed in front of like a large crowd. So the sisters, despite their popularity in 1888, the middle sister Maggie confessed that the quote unquote wrappings were a hoax. She said that the sisters had been kicking tables and cracking their toes beneath their skirts in order to make the noises that they attributed to spirits. Maggie later tried to recant her confession, but by then their reputations had been absolutely ruined. And while the Fox sisters were outed as frauds, that did not stop the wave of spiritualism that they helped start. And as you pointed out as well, Amanda, like many influential members of society were won over by spiritualism. Arthur Conan Doyle, for example, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes books, was included in this kind of wave of spiritualism that was sweeping both the United States and also like England. So Doyle declared himself publicly as a spiritualist in 1916. So again, the first performance of like the rapping by the Fox sisters was in 1849 and it was still going strong in 1916. Yeah. Imagine if a trend from the mid-1950s was, like, stronger than it had ever been. I mean, in some ways, I guess that's, like, rock and roll, but it's almost not even a trend. Like, nobody stands up and is like, I am bravely stating I'm a fan of rock and roll. <laughs> like, it just, it it's amazing the, the enduring quality of spiritualism. Yeah. And I think part of that, too, might just be because modern society, we go through trends faster because we have partially like just a like shorter attention span as a society but also you know you can spread ideas much quicker than we were even in 1849 where you could hear about stuff in Philadelphia from Boston but you know yeah it's also worth saying just of great interest to me and just the the references that I appreciate that W.B. Yeats's lifetime was almost exactly the same as the spiritualist movement. He was born in 1865 and died in 1939. And uh, he took a horde left turn into spiritualism uh, late in his life where he was at first like, let me talk about the Irish character. And then later was like, there's fairies everywhere and I really need to talk about it. And he was right. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, he was right. So Doyle in particular is a, an interesting example of this because he was drawn into their beliefs because he suffered a lot of losses very quickly in a row. He lost his son. He lost his brother. He lost two brother-in-laws and nephews in the years of the First World War. Ugh. And for Doyle and many people from this period of time, the existence of spirits from beyond the grave is what drew them there. The idea that one, you could contact the people that you lost, and also we could gain knowledge from them. So mm -hmm. that's really like what was the draw for spiritualism. 
But spiritualists were not the only ones who were evoking spirits and poltergeists and garnering attention in the real world. Similar to our movie Poltergeist, there was the story of the Enfield poltergeist, which was the actual quote-unquote haunting featured in The Conjuring 2, which I watched recently for the first time back in October. Pretty good movie. Not bad. Hmm, good. Very fictionalized for what actually happened in the, you know, real-life story, but again, a very, very interesting one. That's the whole beat of The Conjuring, isn't it? Is a highly fictionalized version of things that in, in theory are true. That's true. So between 1977 and 1979, the Hodgson family reported poltergeist activity in their council house in Enfield, London, in the UK. So the activity centered mainly on the two young daughters of the family, Margaret, who was 13, and Janet, who was 11. So the story was regularly covered in the newspaper, The Daily Mirror, for like a full two years, reporting the activity and the investigation by paranormal researchers and investigators, which included, of course, the infamous Warrens, because they made a movie about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So over the course of 18 months and many investigations and interviews, the sisters were eventually caught in their lie on film. So Janet was seen on video bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar herself and then blaming the poltergeist. Mm. And one of the most famous photographs that came out of the Enfield poltergeist situation, which is of the girls like levitating, was denounced by skeptics as being like common gymnastics caught on camera. So basically they were jumping on the bed and then making it seem like they were floating you know, horizontally. Yeah. And then just grabbed a picture of it. And they were like, look, it looks like we're floating. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's really interesting to talk about the Enfield poltergeist combined with the story of the Fox sisters and then compared to our film Poltergeist. Because all of these featuring young women, many of these instances of quote unquote real poltergeists tend to end with the revelation that it all started as like young women playing school-age pranks that then just got out of hand, right? Mm -hmm. So to combine this with Carol Ann, whose family in the film assumes that she is just playing and hiding before she is taken, and Diane, who's the mother, who is like the second to notice and then channel the spirits in the house, lays a really interesting dynamic that intrinsically ties women and poltergeist together. I'm not sure exactly if this is like, something from the gender dynamics of the spiritualism movement, if it has something to do with, as we've talked about before in a lot of horror movies, like, oh, women are just more sensitive and therefore more prone to be manipulated by spirits. I just think it's really interesting that we do kind of tie this women as spiritualists, but also con artists to the film of Poltergeist, where the women do really take the center role of the film. I think part of this has to do with, like, the disruption of the domestic. Interesting. The popular imagination or or memory of poltergeists is mostly to do with, like, throwing chaos into order, creating disorder out of order, whether it's, you know, knocking glasses off a shelf or, you know, upturning things on a table or knocking over chairs. Like, they are mundane, but they're also really domestic. And stereotypically, that is the realm of women, um, is to like keep the house orderly. And I think particularly during the time we're talking about in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
you know, there was a lot of fear around like what would happen if this oppressed and like unpaid workforce of, you know, domestic labor were to fight back. I think that's something about like reading about, you know, hysteria and about spiritualism and all of these instances back to, you know, witch trials and the like is all about, you know, the the real male and societal fear of like women acting out and the things we counted on like order and a clean home and a meal ready when we get home in the sort of like typical, you know, post-war American imagination that would be seriously disrupted if women were to withhold labor, much less act out. And so maybe that is part of what ties it together is, you know, exactly like a poltergeist is causing disruption to the home. And that is kind of like a fantasy. I imagine for so many people used to like the humdrum reality of every day I do work that no one pays me for. And if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. And, you know, fuck this, fuck that, fuck you. Like, let me, you know, who who didn't fantasize about like knocking a bowl off a table or or upturning the beautiful bread and like smashing it on the floor. Does that make any sense? Yes, absolutely. It does. <laughs> okay. Hold on to like the nugget of that. Okay. As we go into the second half of our episode. But now we'll get a little bit more into the way that the film Poltergeist uses interesting horror tropes and horrific real world examples to create their horror. But first, before we do that, let's grab a refill. Let's do it. Hello, conspirators, and welcome to The Refill. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I did. First and foremost, we would love to thank our newest patrons, Susie, Jessica, Tiffany, Jasmine, Jill, Emily, Fishlulls, and Rachel. We truly uh, smile and get a little like thrill and a tooth mouse somewhere gets a tooth every time. I'm still thinking about the tooth mouse. Don't worry about me. Um, every time somebody signs up for our Patreon. And now that our Patreon is monthly, that means that when you sign up, A, it's much more straightforward. And B, you get the chance to get a discount on a full year's worth of Patreon. That helps us because we get the money up front and know how much we can budget on spending for the year on things like hosting and equipment and our researchers and social media help. It is so, so useful to us. And for you, you now get more benefits than ever before. All patrons now have access to our monthly bonus episodes, including, because I had to manually change the permissions on each of them, more than 40 monthly bonus Your Urban Legends episodes from the past. And so so many other things like tarot drawings, video advice podcasts that Julia and I have been doing every third week of the month. So much fun. And coming up in December is our quarterly tarot audio vibe dispatch that Julia does for patrons of a certain level. Check it out. Patreon.com slash spirits podcast. But before we move on, thank you as well to our supporting producer-level patrons, Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Kakuta Maculata, Daisy, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica Stewart, Measlekins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Nikki, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi, Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, Spooky Lore, and Zazie. And those legend-level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chivi Yokai, Clara, Ginger Spurs Boy, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and BM Up Scotty. I finished a absolutely like gut-wrenching, incredible fiction book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin that I have to recommend to you. If, like me, you love the musical Merrily We Roll Along, which is about a like creative partnership over the years and kind of the particular challenges and also joys of that, you got to check this novel out. It is fabulous. It is set at a time where I haven't read a lot of novels of kind of like early internet age in Boston. I 
Loved it so much. It gave me all the feels. So, you know, warning for deep emotions, but I hope you enjoy. Check it out at spiritspodcast.com slash books, where this book, along with all of the books that Julia and I have recommended and that our guests have written, available there for you to buy via bookshop.org. And I know that we just went through in the U.S. a bunch of milestones. There were all kinds of online sales. There was Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday. And I just wanted to suggest that you take this time to support Multitude, your friendly local podcast collective. We are a small business and we help creators make a living in the modern media landscape, uh, which is really fucking hard, <laughs> to be honest with you. It is really difficult to work with creators and let them, you know, own their shows and sell ads that are good and not terrible companies and in invest in employees and paying them fairly and giving them a 401k and all of that stuff. We are really proud to do it. But one of the ways that we can make it work is through the membership of the multi-crew. That is something you can join to support Multitude as a whole, not just our you know individual show Patreons, but this money goes toward helping Multitude as an organization function and hire people and invest in new shows and free resources and all kinds of stuff. Your dollar truly goes further when you support indie creators. And we so appreciate your support, whether it's our $5 a month tier where you get access to Head Heart Gut, our weekly friendly debate podcast, or the founder tier where you get your name engraved permanently on a plaque that hangs right behind me in the multitude office. So whatever you do, whether it is supporting us with money or sharing the love about multitude to your friends and family, thank you. We love you. And go to multicrew.club to check out the multicrew. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And, you know, navigating life's challenges can make you feel unsure whether it is stuff like the holidays, family, life changes, changing, you know, your career, your caregiving situation, where you live. And therapists are one of those tools that can help you figure out the stuff that challenges you and not just kind of talk it out, but also learn skills. Like I wish sometimes that there was a school or a manual or, you know, like a clippy tool tips that could help me deal with like, holy shit, how do other people live with this big of a feeling inside of them? Or I can't picture how I'm supposed to ever feel better. And therapy teaches me the kinds of tools and skills I need to help myself in those moments. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It honestly couldn't be simpler. I just did this myself. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and take 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot spirits. We are also sponsored this week by a new folklore-inspired podcast called The Other Path. This is a fantasy audio drama series that immerses you in a world where witches, shapeshifters, and tricksters haunt neighborhood parks and your favorite dive bar. Sounds pretty up our alley, no? Dark comedies and haunting dramas are brought to life by professional actors with amazing music and sound. This is inspired by fantastical tales from the past, but they are set in today's world, which I know a ton of us really enjoy. The Other Path is a podcast filled with magic, mystery, and danger. You can listen now at theotherpath.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. In your podcast app right now, check out The Other Path or go to theotherpath.ca, not com, .ca, to learn more about the show and stream it now. 
And finally, we are sponsored by NYU Press, which is the publisher arm of my alma mater. And they reached out because they have a new book out that could not be more relevant to Spirits listeners. Ready for this? Okay. Mid-Century Cocktails, History, Lore, and Recipes from America's Atomic Age is the newest book in a trilogy called The Cocktails Trilogy by Cecilia Tici. This is a celebrated series. Other titles you might have heard of were Gilded Age Cocktails and Jazz Age Cocktails. And then this is Mid-Century Cocktails. Each book shares the best cocktail creations of the 20th century using period recipes as a way to understand the lives of people in the past. Honestly, couldn't be more interesting. <laughs> couldn't be more relevant to me and to spirits. I am so stoked uh, to check out this book. They sent us a copy and it is so beautiful. And already I am thinking, hmm, like who else can I buy this for in my life? Because a lot of people I know would really love to learn about the past via cocktails. That sounds amazing. You can get 30% off and free shipping when you input the code SPIRITS-FM on nyupress.org. Again, the book is Mid-Century Cocktails, and the trilogy also includes Gilded Age Cocktails and Jazz Age Cocktails. And go to nyupress.org where the code SPIRITS-FM will get you 30% off and free shipping. That code is also in the description. All right, folks. And now back to the show. So for this episode, I wanted a kind of ghostly cocktail and decided on one that I found called the Green Ghost. It is incredibly simple, especially if you just like have some green chartreuse at home. It is just some gin, that green chartreuse, and a squeeze of lime. And for people who haven't had green chartreuse, it is a great liquor. It is herbal. It is complex. It is delicious. Definitely worth having as part of your bar staple. I would highly recommend it. One of my favorite cocktails, the last word, is also made with green chartreuse. And it is delicious. It is really good. and just feels like Victorian in a way that I love. It does, really. <laughs> feel like I should be sipping these right before we start the seance. <laughs> exactly, right? I've worn my laciest black gown. Let's do it. Ah, the veil over my face, you know, just uh, that someone embroidered for me because it's, you know, Victorian times. Exactly. Let's get back to Poltergeist, shall we? One of the film's key reveals is that this uh, like planned community, these tract homes that the Freeling family lives on. Also, I didn't mention it in the description of the film, my two minutes, but Craig T. Nelson's character is one of the realtors for this like planned community. Mm -hmm. So he kind of gets this insight on like how the community was built during a scene with his boss who was just like, yeah, you know, this old graveyard in, in order to make way for more houses, we're going to we're going to move stuff. You know what I mean? So that is like one of the key reveals of the film, which is the Freeling family home lives on what was once a graveyard and that while the real estate agent company that Stephen works for assures him that the graves were moved before construction, they find out that they only moved the gravestones and left the bodies behind, which is what has led to their haunting and their misfortune, right? Yeah, there's a real kind of like anti-capitalist, uh, I think, undertone you could read into that, which is, you know, how much progress and greed, like the, at some point that runs up against what you really just shouldn't do. And in some ways, the world is just acting back in a way that's totally justifiable. I feel like this movie and Gremlins should be kind of like Spielberg's anti-capitalist back-to-back <laughs> here. Until then he realizes, oh no, a lot of money is really good and let me just keep doing that. Yeah, and then he makes stuff like uh, Ready Player One and we're like, oh, bud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that didn't land the way you thought it did. No. Not as bad as Gremlins. So in the film, uh, the real estate agent that he's talking to specifically states that the graves were not Native American graves. 
which without context might be a little bit confusing. Like if you're watching it now, you're like, why would he even need to mention that, you know? But horror movies, especially ghost stories, and especially during this time period, have tethered the image of desecrated indigenous people's burial ground, whose sacred resting place is disturbed, leading to justice by way of haunting. They've tethered those two things together. And this trope or this stereotype is an origin for paranormal activity in films and books that predate Poltergeist and has been used both before and after the film. So... Uh, one of the first ones that I could find was the 1977 Amityville Horror by Jan Anson, which was then turned into a film, like, I think only a few years after that, which included that indigenous burial ground trope, as well as Stephen King's Pet Cemetery in 1983. Mm -hmm. Another example is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980, which is also based on Stephen King's novel. Professor Jessa McEnthon wrote a rather extensive like exploration of this in an essay entitled Haunted Real Estate, the Occlusion of Colonial Disposition and Signatures of Cultural Survival in U.S. Horror Fiction. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so here's a, a great quote from her regarding The Shining and its place kind of within this trope. So, quote, while guiding the Torrance family through the premises, the hotel manager mentions that the hotel has been erected on the site of a former Indian graveyard and against the Native Americans' valiant resistance. But again, the remark is so fleeting that we quickly forget the context of colonial conflict. Instead, the plot centers on the latest aggression stored within the typical American family, an aggression that the bad place brings to the surface. In Freudian terms, then, we can read The Shining's main plot of patriarchal violence as a screen memory of underlying conflict of colonial disposition and the desecration of Indian graves, which can neither be narrated nor forgotten. Mm -hmm. So if you have the ability to read this article, I'm pretty sure it's on JSTOR. It is a fantastic essay, like genuinely has so many wonderful insights. And for some historical context for American history, for those of us who aren't unfamiliar, the United States obviously has a horrific history when it comes to the treatment of indigenous peoples. President Andrew Jackson's presidency in particular saw the brutal removal of eastern tribal nations to territory west of the Mississippis in the Trail of Tears starting in 1830. And even in a speech, and I read the speech and it's incredibly fucked up. So he did a speech in front of Congress advocating the removal of indigenous people from their tribal lands and attempting to defend that decision. And in doing so, invoked the indigenous grave while perpetuating the image of the quote unquote savage native. Like it is extremely fucked up. I got very mad reading it. It was, it was bad. It takes effort to hit on that many objectionable tropes while like making the reality that you're pushing. Oh, God. It's extremely fucked up. And again, The Trail of Tears is one of the like darkest periods of American history and one that we do at least teach but at the same time, like, not as much as we should. So, again, remember that nugget that you're talking about, about the gender dynamics of poltergeists and horror tropes in general as we kind of shift into this. But there is a shift that takes place in American media around the time that movies like Poltergeist were coming out. So Professor McEnthon has some insight into where this cultural shift might have come from. Again, here's a quote from her essay, which is, 
quote, remember that this is not long after the quote unquote crying Indian anti-littering ad, which aired in 1970. And a note that the quote unquote crying Indian himself was an Italian man, not an actual indigenous person. Hate it. Which was a harbinger of the change in the way the post-Columbian American immigrants saw American Indians. The trend slowly started to move from the conception of the quote-unquote savage Indian to something more like a survivor. It's no coincidence that just as quote-unquote Indian burial ground as a trope emerged in the 1970s, so did many activist organizations. The American Indian Advocacy Group began in 1968. The Trail of Broken Treaties, a massive coast-to-coast protest, took place in 1972. In looking at the way that this trope of the indigenous spirit coming back for revenge in horror exists in the genre, Native American scholar Terry Jean has written her theories as to why the trope gained such popularity. And I think that they all have merit, but particularly the last one. So she has five theories as to why this is the case. So the first is simply that because it was so successful in early appearances, it kept being used like if it works, it works kind of in the genre. Mm -hmm. The second is because it is easier to stumble into an unmarked burial ground than it is a cemetery, and that makes it a more convenient trope to be used by the horror genre as a whole. It also grew out of deep racism towards indigenous people and the idea that they are intruding back on the land that was taken from them. Exactly. And also people fear the unknown and American settlers grew superstitious of indigenous cultures just in history as a general rule. And finally, and like I said, I think most impactfully, that it is a manifestation of fear that indigenous groups will seek retribution. Yeah. And this is kind of where you and I were hitting on that earlier, but in a different way. So I I think it's safe to say that American people have not seen repercussions for the atrocities that were done to Native Americans, the land that was taken, the culture that was erased, the lives that were taken and destroyed. And all this to say, I think the quote unquote, Indian burial ground trope in horror is rooted in the atrocities done by white people in this country and is often written and invoked without Native involvement, which is why I think it is a trope that I really hope we stop using in the future. Yeah, I think that it's a lot easier for settlers to confront the realities of colonialism, displacement, and the murder of Indigenous people as a sort of historical thing in the past and thinking about and empathizing with Native lives only in the past as like people whose lives are over and who they're only in your life because you disturb them now, not because of what happened already and certainly not confronting the realities of Native people who are you know living and need things now and realizing, huh, like I wonder how my specific legacy of being descended from settlers or, you know, benefiting from the privileges of settlers in the U.S., what is my responsibility? Those are all things that is easy for, you know, a person not to think about. And if you do, it's almost the one thing where you can say like, oh, well, you know, I guess the one step too far is disturbing a grave like that. That I think is kind of the the unspoken logic of why this is the step too far for settlers in movies like this. And yeah, it's just, oh, gosh, I appreciate, you know, digging into this trope because it's not like a thing that's done and that we have to accept. Right. It's like it's a, you know, a legacy and, and, and a continuing injustice that is everyone's responsibility to fix um, and not just a thing that we can read about and say, ah, too bad. Glad that's not happening anymore. It's happening every day. 
Absolutely. And for a little bit more on this topic, I would recommend native writer Shay Vassar's article for Film School Rejects titled Digging Up the Indian Burial Ground Trope. It was a fantastic read and really did like give me a lot of insight into this topic as a whole. Yeah, I also really love following um, accounts um, and journalists like Indian Country Today, the All My Relations podcast, the Native American Journalists Association, all of which have a ton of just like talking about the realities and complexities these of native life today and real ways that settlers can start to do things like, you know, give back land, donate money and uh, advance native causes. Yeah, it is our legacy as white people. And we have a responsibility to do something about that. 100%. So before we close out this episode, I wanted to point out a little Easter egg that the movie Poltergeist has that some people who watched it might not have picked up on. In one scene where Diane and Stephen are smoking weed in their bedroom as their kids have gone to bed. Not to say that you can't smoke weed when you have kids, but like this was also the 80s. So it was like kind of a statement to have them doing that. So Diane is lying in bed reading a copy of Man and His Symbols, which was the last work by Carl Jung before his death. Oh, boy. Jung actually had his own connection to poltergeists, something that he wrote about. So in 1909, he met Sigmund Freud in Vienna and wrote about the account. And it does feature a poltergeist. Huge if true, Julia. Tell me more. So the quote is, while Freud was going on in this way, which is a fucking hilarious way to be like, and Freud would just kept fucking talking. He talked and talked. While Freud was going on in this way, I had a curious sensation. It was if my diaphragm were made of iron and was becoming red hot, a glowing vault. And at that moment, there was such a loud report from the bookcase, which stood right next to us, that we both started up in alarm, fearing that the thing was going to topple over on us. I said to Freud, <laughs> there is an example of a so-called catalytic exteriorization phenomenon, a.k.a. a poltergeist. Oh, my God. Hanging out with psychologists, I can't. <laughs> oh, come, he exclaimed. That is sheer bosh. Oh, my God. It is not, I replied. You are mistaken, Air Professor. And to prove my point, I now predict that there will be another loud report. Sure enough, no sooner had I said the words than the same detonation went off in the bookcase. To this day, I do not know what gave me the certainty. Wow. So that is all I have for Poltergeists and the movie Poltergeist. I hope that one, it was an interesting insight on the history of poltergeists and the way that kind of American con artists and the spiritualism movement kind of impacted horror as a genre. And again, touched on the tropes that are pretty harmful in the horror genre as a whole. So I hope everyone enjoyed. I hope you do, too. And no matter what happens around you, whether you see a glass fall off a shelf or decide to withhold your domestic labor as a strike against being unpaid. Remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. 
Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.